Nana was a crazy one. She told wild tales filled with her own mythos. Shaky Jake with his blurred edges, long-fingered Sue, Tommy Black Tongue with his glowing red eyes, and the inside-out twins. Then I saw them appear, one by one, at her funeral. And they saw me, too. The sun has gone down. It's dark outside. Nighttime has begun. But you dare not close your eyes. For in the darkness there are things unseen. Faces without eyes watching you. Nightmares exist while you're awake. No matter how much you try, you remain sleepless. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. It's heartwarming to know a dearly departed loved one has so many friends to mourn their loss. Heartwarming and spine-tingling. As we learned from author Adam Davies from the tale which was this episode's cold open, The Mourners, performed by Kyle Akers. Come and knock on our door. We've been waiting for you. Yes, we have entered the decade of the 1970s, and we'd like to think of everyone listening as, well, all in the family. Yes, television of the 1970s certainly turned to the dark hours when you dare not close your eyes, with shows like The Night Stalker, Night Gallery, Dark Shadows, and, of course, Scooby-Doo. Ah, but don't fuss any longer with the TV antenna. Plug in the cable and watch these stories in glorious color, although they're mostly quite dark. And speaking of quite dark, we're proud to present the first installment of the ten-part series, This Book Will Kill You, by Alexander Gordon Smith. Once you start, there's no point in turning back. And now we offer for your approval a series of stories we hope will make you sleepless. In our first tale, we join a young lad doing something which was probably a bit more popular in the 70s than it is today, going to the library. And in this tale, shared with us by author T. Michael Argent, we discover the boy loves reading. That is, until he ventures into a part of the library best left undisturbed. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, Wafia White, and Peter Lewis. So if you love the smell of books and your decimals dewy, you might enjoy some sections of the Autumn Creek Library.
When I was a kid, I had two options for how to spend a summer day. Stay at home and help mom around the house, or go to the library. Being a lover of books, I chose the latter. The Autumn Creek Library was one of the oldest buildings in town. From what I read on the little plaque near the front doors, it was built in the 1920s and retained most of the architecture from when it first opened. Except for some new coats of paint and construction to bring it up to modern building codes, it looked almost identical to as it had 80 years before. The exterior had a gabled roof and rich red brick walls. Inside, the shelves stood like soldiers, barely four feet in between. There were big chairs so comfy you could get lost in them, a computer section if the books got boring, and the tall information desk, at which sat the equally tall Mrs. Harris. Every day when I walked through the doors at around 10.30, Mrs. Harris would squint at me through her glasses as she loomed over the desk. Good morning, Logan. And what are we looking at today? I would tell her what I felt like reading, and she would point me in the direction of the correct section. Usually, it was sharks, worn goosebumps books, or something else that ten-year-olds loved. One day, I wanted to read about snow. I don't remember why and can't think of a reason. It was the middle of summer. I was in the library to escape the boiling temperatures outside. It should have been the last thing on my mind. When I told Mrs. Harris, she gave me a quizzical smile. Snow, huh? That's quite a big topic. Our weather books are over there. She pointed to an archway that led into a darkened section of the library. Try not to be too long in there, dear. The cleaners are coming to wax the floors this afternoon. I nodded. Thank you. I called back as I went. I had only been in this section a handful of times. Mrs. Harris kept all the boring topics there. Law, physics, philosophy, and apparently weather. It was deserted, which I thought was odd considering the heat outside. And come to think of it, except for a few exceptions, I never saw anyone in there. Since it was so early, the custodian had failed to turn on all the lights. In each row were three bulbs, along with the ones in the corners and a big chandelier in the center. The rows only had one light on each, and the corners were dark completely. The chandelier was powered, but it was dim so much it might as well have not been on at all. For the first time, I noticed that the windows were covered. Most of the other areas had column-like panes of glass lining the walls, but here they were masked with heavy curtains. The lack of natural light and the dimness cast the area in a sickly blend of shadows and pools of brightness. My footsteps echoed gloomily as I made my way to the center aisle. Much like the other sections, this one had a central row of tables and chairs that ran from one wall to the opposite. The old-fashioned green lamps on each were dark. I looked at the strips of paper that had been taped high up on the ends of the shelves. Each was labeled. I walked along general law, natural physics, eastern philosophy, and other exciting topics until the word weather proudly displayed itself in black ink. I peeked down the row, bracketed by shadows. It stretched lazily to the back wall. Halfway down, I noticed a book lying on the floor. The cover proclaimed in large gold letters the words concerning weather. For some reason I couldn't place, I was starting to feel uneasy and considered leaving. But curiosity overcame me. Snatching the book up, I ran to the center and jumped into one of the chairs. 
The light in the room was dim, but just enough to read by. I pulled the chain on the nearest lamp, but it didn't come on. I flipped the book open to a random page. But it wasn't what I was looking for. It discussed snow, sure, but it used big, boring words that my ten-year-old brain didn't have the patience to learn. I gave up and shut it after five minutes and walked back to the row I'd gotten it from. I didn't feel like being in the library today. Maybe mom could use some help going grocery shopping. I tried to find the place where I found the book. Looking high at the shelves, I saw an empty space between two other volumes that looked just as imposing as concerning weather. It was six feet out of my reach on the top shelf. I had no hope of reaching it. I mean, I couldn't just put the book back on the floor, could I? Mrs. Harris hated picking things up for lazy people. I was about to take it back to the front desk when I heard an oily, spidery sound. Turning, I saw one of those ladders librarians use to reach books come speeding towards me, its golden wheels and track matted in the gloom. As if on cue, it came to a stop a few inches away, placed perfectly at the spot I would have to climb up to put the book back. I gingerly placed my foot on the bottom rung. Grabbing the rail with my other hand, I carefully climbed up. The book felt heavy in my hand, and I almost dropped it. At the top, I hefted it up and placed it in the empty space. That's when I noticed the eyes staring at me. I gasped and almost lost my grip on the ladder. Even though I was only nine feet in the air, the ground seemed stories below. Bringing my face back up, I got a closer look. Two green eyes were peering at me in the space between the tops of the books and the top of the shelf. A hand lifted up and rested on the spines. The fingers drummed rhythmically before an equally hypnotic voice crooned. That was a bit of a slog, wasn't it? I'll bet you would have liked it better with pictures. Taken aback, I shifted on the ladder. Yeah, there were a lot of big words I didn't understand. Yes, I've always thought that snow looked prettier in pictures than in words. Most things are like that, I assume. How did you know I was reading about snow? The eyes looked watery and distant. The voice replied, but not with an answer. People don't come into this section very often. It gets quite lonely in here sometimes. Uh, are, are you the cleaner who's waxing the floors? Do I need to leave? The voice chuckled and withdrew its hand. not. But maybe you should get down from that ladder. It would be a shame if you were to fall and hurt yourself. It was true. My head was starting to spin, and I wanted to be back on the ground. Okay. I climbed down. My feet hitting the wooden rungs made loud, echoing noises. I was concerned I wasn't hearing similar sounds mirroring the ones I was making. The voice had to be on another ladder, right? I reached the bottom and peered back between the shelves. The eyes appeared a moment later at my height, followed by the drumming hand. There. Isn't that better? I didn't reply. The voice continued as if I had. I'm glad to meet someone who loves books as much as I do. 
The people who come in here to read about uh, law and such don't usually feel like talking to me. I leaned against the opposite shelf. I, I guess so. So, what was it that you wanted to hear about? Snow, was it? Hmm. The drumming hand withdrew. That book you found won't be any good for that. Might I suggest another? I didn't have time to come up with an answer before the hand did for me. Let's see what we have presently. I expected the owner of the voice to come along to my side and help me look at or at least reach their hand through at eye level to feel what was available. But instead, the hand vaulted and reached over the top of the shelf, feeling the books that resided at the pinnacle. The hand slid hypnotically over the spines, at least three feet of the arm visible moving over the top of the shelf as it searched for something suitable. But those shelves were nine feet high. Unless it was standing on a ladder, there was no way. I had just started inching back towards the center aisle when the hand found purchase and tapped on the spine of a book labeled Weather Considered. There, I think that will suit nicely. There was no way it could have read the title from where it was. In fact, its eyes never left me. I wordlessly nodded and took a few more steps. A second hand appeared over the top as well. Of course, that one has so few pictures. This one has even more. It tapped another spine, but I didn't bother reading the title. And then... A third hand appeared at the shelf of books at eye level with the voice, drumming rhythmically again. Do any of those catch your fancy? Who... who are you? Uh, did I not introduce myself? My eyes caught movement to my right. A fourth hand had appeared around the corner at the far end near the wall, slowly traveling across the books as it came my way. Its fingers were outstretched eagerly, as if expecting a handshake. I took a few more steps back and was turning to run when one of the books above came flying and landed on my head. I stumbled, hitting the opposite shelf. Looking up, I saw that one of the heavy weather books had been shoved out of its place on the highest shelf. A fifth hand sat in the empty space, palm outstretched. Did you not like that one? Well, how about these? The books came flying from the upper shelves, all somehow managing to land on me. Every second I was being pummeled, welts appearing fast. A particularly heavy one landed on my nose. White hot pain erupted, and I felt a burst of blood running down my lips and dripping onto my shirt. I ran, putting my hands over my head to protect myself. As I made my way down, I could see the eyes following me even as the hands pushing the books never changed position. Going somewhere? I finally looked up towards the end of the row and almost screamed. The hands were stretching across the aisle, in the process of making a barrier. Picking up as much speed as I could, I ran at it, putting my shoulder up. I burst into the center, hands snatching, nails scratching, fingers caressing as I passed through. I ran into one of the tables, causing the green lamp on it to fall and crash. My arm stung with cuts. 
I dare to look back and saw pale limbs, too numerous to count, slithering along the floor towards me like snakes, fingers outstretched. The voice called from everywhere at once. There's so much left to live, so many books, so many pages to read. I screamed and turned to run, but found myself colliding with something. Terrified it was another pair of hands, I swatted at them before something clamped down on my shoulders. Logan Masterson, what on earth have you been doing in here? Look at this mess you've made. She let go of my shoulders and stepped past me. Wait, don't go in there. I ran forward and peered back into the aisle, but other than the numerous books on the floor, there was no sign of whatever had been terrorizing me. Dead silence returned to the space. Mrs. Harris saw the red drops on the tile and followed their trail to me, who stood there snuffling with a nose full of blood. Why are you climbing the shelves? I told you before, if you want a book on a higher shelf, come get me! I I looked around for any evidence that what had happened to me was real. I'll have to tell the cleaners to come tomorrow. It's going to take me the rest of the day to put these back. She grabbed my hand and hustled me towards the archway. I'm going to call your mother. Forty-five minutes and a profuse apology to Mrs. Harris later, I sat in the car in the parking lot as Mum began to pull out. I had been grounded and not allowed to go back to the library for two weeks, something that was more than fine with me. As the car began to pull towards the entrance, my eyes drifted to the windows. I noticed a familiar line of curtain-covered panes. Just before Mom turned onto the road, one of them parted for a moment, and I caught a flash of green peering out towards me. I blinked, and it was gone. I never told anyone what happened. I spent years afterwards telling myself what I experienced was the result of an overactive imagination. As I got older, I outgrew the library and lost interest in books, moving towards sports. I would sometimes fleetingly wonder if that long-ago summer morning was the reason I didn't like reading anymore, but I always pushed it down. Needless to say, I never had any plans to return to the Autumn Creek Library. A few weeks ago, I visited my hometown again for a relative's funeral. My family had moved across the state soon after the library incident for my dad's job. Coincidentally, it was summertime as well. After a stuffy afternoon in a hot house wearing black, I decided to go for a walk. I knew where my feet were taking me before I crossed the lawn. I tried to think of other things, but ten minutes later I saw the familiar building coming up from behind a cluster of trees. It looked the same as it had 18 years ago. Same brick exterior, same moss on the roof, same window panes sparkling in the sun. I didn't see curtains on any of them. A sign announced that the library was having a reject book sale. Um, If you don't know what that is, that's when libraries go through their collection and pick out books that no one wants to read anymore to sell for cheap. I momentarily considered not going in, but knew I had to. I mounted the steps and entered the coolness of the building, a shield from the hot sun outside. 
I didn't bother looking towards the archway before turning into the room with the sail. To my surprise, I saw a familiar face sitting at the table. As unchanged as the library itself, well, perhaps with grayer hair, was Mrs. Harris. Logan? Logan Masterson? I was shocked she recognized me. Yeah, it's me, Mrs. Harris. Long time no see. We talked for a few minutes about what I'd been up to since we moved all those years ago. On a whim, I decided I had to ask her something. Um, Mrs. Harris, do you remember that day I knocked all those books off the shelves in that corner section? She looked thoughtful for a moment before recognition flashed in her eyes. Yes. Yes, I remember. What a mess it was. But don't worry, dear. We all do things like that as children. She could tell that wasn't the response I was looking for. Why do you ask? It's just... Did you see anything? Anything strange while you were putting the books back? She frowned. Well, now that you mention it, I did think it was odd that you had managed to throw a few of the higher books off the shelves. The ladder only reaches halfway down the aisle, but the ones in the section after that were on the floor as well. I always assume you bumped into the shelving and knocked them off too. I wasn't going to get the answers I was looking for. I forced a smile. Yep, thanks. I'm gonna take a look around. You do that, dear. It's nice to see you. I browsed the boxes for a while, leafing through a few novels before putting them back. There were way more rejects than I was expecting. Just when I thought about leaving, I caught a gleam of gold and a beam of sunlight coming through the window. I turned to see a book glinting a few feet away. My stomach dropped when I saw the title printed on its spine. Concerning weather. I snatched it up before I could stop myself. It felt oddly warm to the touch. With shaking hands, I opened it. Before I dropped the book on the floor and fled the library, I had time to catch a glimpse of one thing. A bloody handprint on the inside cover. Dried, brown and flaking from being closed inside for almost 20 years. But the worst part was the fingers. The tips from the second joint up were missing, as if something had licked the blood clean off them after a meal. Living on the prairies usually means you're quite familiar with the bucolic way of life. Farms, corn, all manner of livestock. And if you lived in the village of Brighton, you'd be familiar with tragedy and mystery. And in this tale, shared with us by author Matthew L. Reyes, we follow the brewing storm and blood trails, working our way backwards to uncover clues in order to discover what took place. Performing this tale 
is Mike Delgadio. So walk to the river. It's far better than riding on a horse with no name. A westward wind blows blades of prairie grass, tall and golden and rippling in waves, picking up some and carrying them towards the village of Brighton. It is a town between prairie and lake, river and desolate highway, settled as a farming community and little has changed since. The air is hot, and as it blows over fields of unripe corn, smells of earthly manure and something distinctly sweet, Near the town, a set of large horse hoofs prints trails in the dirt and bends away from town and toward the river. A strong gust reaches Brighton's main business district, a single street with old-world charm and European architecture resembling the Germanic buildings that first populated it. It is Saturday. Ordinarily, the town, as much as it can for its size, bustles. Today, it is an empty husk. Quiet and still, but for the wind, creaking, hanging shop signs, and a faint crying. The wind stirs up the potted flowers and herbs in front of Michener's farm and feed, and knocks over a clabbered sign in front of a barbershop. Nobody is around to pick up the sign when it falls. From the center of town, mingling with the whistling of the breeze, comes a trembling scream that carries through Main Street from the direction of the town's community center. Human voices carry from the building. Some of those voices are crying. The wind continues its journey through the town, indifferent to the lone screaming and distant sobbing and the drops of sticky blood that trail in front of the barbershop. As the wind picks up, a crow, sensing that there is nobody near to shoo it away, lands on the falling sign in front of the barbershop. It hops to the ground and is joined by another, and the two pack at the dried droplets of blood, which are brown against the old bricks of the street. The crows, dissatisfied, soon fly off. Droplets of blood, now undisturbed, are spaced apart every few feet on the neatly arranged bricks. A single drop dries on the green fern whipping with the gusts outside of the farming supply store. Another droplet, larger than the last, runs in a smear on the curb of the sidewalk. Behind it, on the street, is another, and another behind that, and so on, crossing the old red bricks. There are more buildings across the street. The Bijou Theater, long defunct and shuttered down, sits empty and dark next to a diner with no name that is usually filled with people. It, too, is empty. A sign hangs on the door. At emergency meeting. Wind whistles through the slim alley separating the theater and the diner, compressing and pushing itself as though through a narrow tunnel. Bits of garbage blow into the street. More blood trails on the ground into the alley. Halfway through the alley, on the diner's side, is a child's handprint, a perfect print, scarlet against the white painted brick of the alley wall. The finger marks are short, incomplete. They end too abruptly. There is a large smatter of drying blood beyond the print, going for a length of a few feet, 
and trailing off as the alley wall ends. On the dirty ground where the alley opens into a field is the tip of a child's thumb. Pale and bloodless, it sits on the ground, shifting and rolling with the strong gusts of wind. There is dirt under the nail, which would need clipping were it still attached to the child. Down the little hill behind the theater and the diner, there is an incline of dirt where grass has not grown for years. The dirt is ordinarily smooth and undisturbed, as nobody goes back there, but today it is tossed about as though someone has scrambled up the incline. These shapeless and chaotic tracks on the hill even out at the bottom and become footprints. Bare and erratic, they belong to a child. Some of the prints are bloody. The footprints are broken only once, where there are two circular marks. Here the runner fell onto their knees and, with one hand, pushed themselves up to continue running. Blood is soaked into the dirt and has made clumpy mud that smells hotly of iron and salt. Following the prints backwards further still, they emerge from a dirt path that cuts through tall and golden prairie grass, which ripples in the wind and blows a sour smell from the river to the town. The uneven footprints trail along the right side of the dark dirt path. Along the rightward side of the path, several blades of yellow grass are streaked with bright blood. There are three other sets of prints on the left side of the wide dirt path, these heading toward the river. Two are pairs of bare footprints, the size two children might make and one of these is identical to the bloody prints leading back into the town. The footprints heading down to the river are steady and methodical, toes and heels distinguishable. The final set of prints are those of a horse, though it first appears from the direction of the hooves that the horse was walking away from the river and toward town, but the direction the dirt kicked up indicates that the horse was heading to the river instead walking backwards. A few strands of long and shimmering black hairs are caught on the thorny leaves of milkweed on the leftward side of the path. The uneven and bloody prints, which indicate a long running stride, run parallel to the steady steps of the horse and the two children who either followed the horse or were followed by it down the long and winding dirt path leading to the river. Above the trail and the fields of grass, Gray clouds roil and tumble over deep blue skies. The wind gives way to a breeze, which then falls to a brief silence. The long blades of grass come to a gentle stop, and all is silent. All is still for a moment. And then, a faint cry from town, carried by the wind, reaches the trail. A mournful and piercing sob, mingled with angry voices, Further from town, the bloody footprints on the right of the path become more spaced. The runner, before losing blood, still had the energy to run at this point. The footprints on the left, which were either following or being followed by those of a backward walking horse, remain steady. The strides shortening as the path dips downward toward the riverbank. Here, the two walkers slowed. The wind picks up again. This time, the wind is frosty as it carries over the river from the prairie beyond, and it whips up the fields, which glow in the waning light of the sun 
as it pierces through the growing mass of gray clouds. A trail of blood left against the grass on the right side of the path soaks up the sunlight, the deep rust a contrast against goldenrod blades. Black and churning, the river swells and ebbs and pulses with a life of its own as the wind laps at the waters. The oncoming storm chokes out the sun and casts the world in shadow, and the wind begins to scream as black clouds move in. The dirt path ends on a brown riverbank that slopes gently toward the shore of smooth and polished gray stones. At the top of the riverbank is a pocket knife, crusted with dried blood and bits of ragged skin. Hoofprints come to a standstill near the water's edge, right before dirt becomes stone. Clusters of grass fronds have been munched, their yellow blades broken, some missing. The horse stood here for some time, eating, placid, waiting. The hooves' U-shapes come to pointed tips, facing away from the blades of grass, which have been eaten, as though the horse were facing away from the grass. Yet this cannot be so. Stray blades have fallen to the brown earth. The two pairs of children's prints approach the horse. The steps are close together, even, methodical. Across one print lies a single finger, small and bloodless, like the thumb closer to town. The prints come to a stop at the horse's prints. Two children watched a horse as it ate. Maybe they found it lovely, as might be indicated by the dark and shimmering strands of hair it left when walking down to the river which now churns, its waters black, feet away from where the horse and the boys stood. Perhaps they were in awe of the beast that patiently waited for them, allowed them to stare and pet it as it ate the grass. Perhaps one of them stroked its nose. The human prints shift as they stray closer to the river, one standing immediately before the other, and then one set of footprints steps back from the horse, and the first pair vanish. Above, in the sky, the wind whirls, and in the distance, gray clouds begin to darken to black-blue, and lightning flashes across the horizon. In the distance, a massive rumble from the sky. The wind carries with it the scent of ozone and the trembling thunder and the whispering echoes of two shrill screams that cling to the river's edge. The horse hooves back up toward the river. The footprints of the child remaining on the ground follow the horse, but drag as though the horse pulled the child. The dirt here, where river bank meets path, is stirred up fiercely, and all prints are indiscernible. There is no sign of the second child's prints. Human feet and horse-like hooves near the shore and disappear altogether as wet pebbles replace dry dirt. The pebbles are strewn and kicked in every direction. Rocks mix with blood at the water's edge. Raindrops begin to patter the riverside stones. On the edge of the river, inches from where the water laps as the winds kick it up, are three severed fingers. A pinky with its nail ripped halfway off, a little ring finger, and the middle finger. They are each red and raw and tangled together by black and shimmering horsehairs. Blood splashes the pebbles in bright and wet puddles. 
red against white and gray. Lightning strikes across the river, and rain begins to fall in torrential sheets, obscuring the sky and the prairie beyond the river's edge. The wind howls and screams with the rage of a legion of horses from the depths of a frozen hell, whipping and lashing the grass and turning the black water to a cold and roiling boil. All prints near the river's edge and the path leading from it are washed away as the dirt becomes mud, which then becomes a myriad of puddles. In the river, which now swells, waves grow stronger and lap the bank, and the water sucks at the tiny fingers and washes the blood away. And from the center of the river, barely visible in the sheets of rain, something pale rises from just beneath the surface. Something equine and gaunt and long and white, a head of something just beneath the waves, rises until bleached bone breaks the surface of the roiling river. Eyes, cold and blue and dead and deeper than the river and older than the prairie, gaze through the falling mist and set upon the golden lights of the village beyond, where voices still cry in anguish. When you're driving at night, there are many things you need to be aware of. Staying awake, staying on course, and staying away from anything which might dart out in front of your car. And in this tale, shared with us by author Caleb Stevens, we meet a mother and daughter dealing with the travails of the roads at night due to something unforeseen in their path. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio, Lindsay Russo, Mary Murphy, and Jesse Cornett. So if you find that you're not alone on the dark roads, take the advice offered herein. Don't let her in. I hate my name, especially when mom says it. Nat. It makes me think of gnats, like I'm this annoying insect she wants to swat away anytime I say something. Not now, gnat. Go away, gnat. I'm busy, gnat. That's what I am to her. An annoying buzz at best. The kids at school are worse. They call me fattily, which I guess sort of makes sense. I mean, I am on the chunky side and all, but you'd think they'd be a little more creative with it. Fattily is just so on the nose. Or maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. Most high school kids are pretty dumb. The only person who's ever said my name in a way I liked was Grand's. Natalie. She made it sound so beautiful, so natural. Like, here you go, Natalie. Let me show you why your mother gave you this name. We'd be cuddled up on the couch, wrapped in a couple of blankets while watching some movie, and she'd squeeze my knee and say something like, Oh, Natalie, don't you just love this? And that's the thing. 
I truly did. To her, I wasn't this awkward fat girl trying to fit in or the irritating daughter who was always in the way. I was just me, Natalie. And that was good enough for her. Not that it matters anymore. My sweet grands died of dementia a year ago. She forgot my name entirely. To her, I became another stranger and, just like that, I was alone again. Are we getting close? I rubbed my eyes and sat up. The rain was really coming down now, obscuring the palm trees lining the road and turning them into thick, black giants whipping sideways in the wind. It was only half past five, but it might as well have been dusk with how thick the clouds were. Summer in Florida, you never knew when a thunderstorm would blow in. Mm, Maybe another half hour or so if this keeps up. Mom snatched her pack of Newports from the dash and shook out a cigarette, then lit it with a quick flick of her bick. You know, I am getting sick of carting you around everywhere, Nat. You're 17. You should have your driver's license by now, don't you think? All your friends do. I don't have any friends. That's not true. What about Ashley? Oh, and that girl, Gina? The cute one I saw you talking to the other day after school? Ashley and I haven't been friends since freshman year, Mom. And Gina is my lab partner. She hates me. And she does. Most of the kids at school do. Well, maybe not hate so much as ignore. I'm mostly invisible. I like to make a game out of it to see how long it takes for someone to acknowledge me. My record is four days, but I'm pretty sure I can make it a week if I really try. Mom cracked her window and blew a stream of smoke into the rain. My mother never drove me anywhere. If I wanted to go somewhere, I had to walk. I didn't say anything. Just hearing her mention grands made me sad. Look, either you get your license or your dad can come get you on his weekends. I am done driving you down here. It's too far, and unlike him, I actually have to work in the morning. Shit! I didn't have time to see what she saw. All I knew was that my head was fine one moment and flying toward the dash the next. I don't remember what followed except for a bunch of stars exploding behind my eyelids. After a moment, Mom's voice leaked into my ears, sounding muffled and tinny. I groaned and sat up. Huh? I said, what was... Oh, Lord, baby, you're bleeding. Her fingers wound through my bangs and prodded my forehead. Ouch. I slapped her hand away. Goddamn thing is supposed to have airbags. That's what Lou told me when I bought it from him anyway, that lying bastard. Here, let me get you a bandage. Mom dug through the console. I have one in here, some... Where... The word hung there, her gaze back on the windshield. I followed it and went stiff. We were stopped on the shoulder of the highway, nearly in the ditch, and there was something on the hood. A big something. Lying on its side with shattered legs extending from its body in odd angles, it had dark globe eyes and a long, broad jaw split by a row of ivory teeth. A deer, but larger And not really a deer at all. It looked like... An elk? I think we hit an elk. But there aren't any elk in Florida, are there? Uh, I don't think so. I've certainly never seen one. I fingered my forehead and winced. Mom dug her phone from her purse and punched in a number. I didn't hear a word of what she said. Not with her voice coming out in a dull... Mwah, mwah, mwah. I just stared at the elk. It was huge. I mean, absolutely massive, 
with these broad, muscular shoulders and a head that took up half the hood. Larger than any animal I'd ever seen, that was for sure. Even bigger than the gators with the fat bellies I sometimes saw sunbathing down near Miller Pond. And it was beautiful. That was the sad thing. Its coat was a rich, smooth brown, and it had a pair of antlers that spread out like a crown, the tips piercing the windshield in spots. Now it was dead, and we'd been the ones to kill it. Mom set her phone on the dash. (sighs) They're sending a tow truck. It should be here soon. Except it wouldn't. Ask anyone who knows. Steinhatchee, Florida is pretty much the definition of the middle of nowhere, and we weren't even there yet, so this was worse than the middle of nowhere. I was pretty sure we were still somewhere in the tide swamp based on all the sawgrass jetting up across the road. I was just about to tell Mom as much when a low grunt carried in through the rain. Did it just... Uh, I think so. I tilted my head to get a better look. I could make out the elk's eyes. Eyes that snapped open and shut. A scream lodged in my throat. Did you see that? See what? It blinked. Mom leaned closer. I don't know, Nat. We hit it so hard, I'd be surprised if it was still alive. An antler twitched. Oh. A sudden vibration shook the car, and then the elk was moving, coming to life in a series of jerks and heaves, its antlers rising and its legs wobbly like a newborn calf's. It planted one hoof on the hood, and then another, its knees bulging, somehow clicking back into place along with its legs, legs that had been broken a moment earlier. The bones twerking beneath the skin, fusing into two straight lines with a series of uneven pops that made my stomach twist. The car groaned beneath the thing's weight as it stood, and for a moment, I thought the elk was going to bound off into the swamp like nothing had happened. Then its hindquarters jittered, and it tumbled off the hood and onto the road where we couldn't see it. I looked at Mom. Mom looked at me. And we sat there, staring at each other framed in the light bleeding from the dashboard, wondering what the hell had just happened. Through the holes in the windshield, we could hear the rain hissing against the hood, whooshing off the leaves and into the deep pockets of mud tucked behind the trees. The sound reminded me of the ocean before a storm. A bunch of angry water churning against the rocks. And something else. A noise out of place. That same grinding pop of bone from seconds earlier, only coming louder now, sounding like a hailstorm on a tin roof, sounding like gunshots. And then, with a lurching heave, the elk stood. Except, it wasn't an elk. It was Grand's. Dear God. I'd only seen Grand's naked once before. I'd been six, maybe seven, at her house for a sleepover when I'd accidentally walked into her bathroom without knocking. There she'd been, humming and drying her hair, with an interstate of blue lines snaking down her thighs, her breasts sagging and worn, ending in a set of nipples that pointed toward her thighs. It was one of those images that had scorched itself into my brain and stayed there. So that is what it looks like to get old. I'd stood frozen in the doorway, hypnotized by the sight, until she yelped and escorted me back to the hall. Now, now, Natalie, we always knock. That was exactly how I felt now. Frozen. Mom, too, with both of us gawking at Grands, who was staring right back, steaming naked in the headlights with patches of fur clinging to her chest and neck. Grands, who was a year dead now, no, more than a year, somewhere closer to 18 months, outlined in the headlights in perfect detail, just like on the day I'd walked in on her in that bathroom. Except, 
Unlike that day, she didn't bother to cover up. She just stood there with her head cocked to the side and her mop-water-colored hair clinging to her face in strips. After a moment, her mouth moved. And even though I couldn't hear her, I knew exactly what she said. Natalie. Mom yipped and grabbed her phone, hit the flashlight, and shined it past me through the windshield at Grand's. Who was gone? Chris, what's happening? I don't know. Grand's hand smacked my window, and I nearly swallowed my tongue as Mom aimed the light at her face. She gave us a sad smile and said something. Her voice muffled through the glass, but it was Grand's voice. It had the same inflection, the same tone. She motioned for me to roll down the window with a little turn of her wrist, and I found my hand drifting for the switch automatically. Yes, ma'am. The glass descending an inch before Mom grabbed my arm. Not wait! There she is. There's my sweet girl. Grands? She gave me a little nod, and her smile broadened. I didn't know if it was me or the light, but her teeth seemed a shade darker than I remembered. Like they'd been soaked in butter. Yes, sweetheart, it's me. I've missed you. I've missed you so much. But, but how? Her gaze dropped, her mouth twisting to the side for a moment before her eyes found mine again and wilted. It's not true what they say, Natalie, about what happens after you die. The place you go, it's... it's... it's not a good place. It's not nice. The things they do to you there... Well, they hurt. Mom moaned, and Grands nodded as if in agreement, as if that sound about summed it up, whatever it was she'd endured in the last year and a half. I couldn't stay there any longer, especially not with how much you needed me. What kind of grandma would I be if I abandoned you, Natalie? Pebbles of goose flesh rippled across her chest. She rubbed her arms. Be a dear and let me in, will you? She nodded to the door handle as if deciding for me. It's so cold out here. My hand moved. <laughs> Don't. Mom's words came out in a hiss. I paused and looked at her. She shook her head once. It's not her. How do you know? It's just... Her eyes flicked past my shoulder. It's just not okay. Gran is dead. Jolene, didn't I raise you better than to leave an old woman standing out in the rain? And naked, no less. Where are your manners? I turned back to Grand's, but she wasn't looking at me anymore. She was focused on Mom. Something intense in her gaze, her eyes burning. Jolene, you will let me in this car this instant. Do you understand? This instant. Lord knows I raised you better than this. You should be ashamed of yourself. Mom winced. Uh, no, no, it's not you. You're not... I mean... Christ, Mom, you're dead. Grand's growled then, a strange clicking sound rolling up her throat. She straightened and worked down the fender toward the hood, looking unsteady like she might trip and fall at any minute. Something burrowed beneath the strawberry jelly-colored birthmark on her hip. It took a moment to place what exactly it reminded me of, 
and then it hit me. Snakes. Whatever was wriggling under her skin looked like snakes, a nest of long, thin bodies that swam through her flesh like it was made of water. Start the car! Start the car! Mom's hand jetted for the ignition and cranked the keys. The engine groaned and spit off waves of steam as Gran moved past the hood in the same old woman walk that had consumed her before she'd died. Shoulders stooped, one foot dragging behind the other. It was painful to watch. Help me! She neared Mom's window. I... I don't know where I am. Can... can you help me? Please help me. Don't let her in. Mom went for the window and tried to roll it up. Grand drew closer, the window sticking as Grand bent lower and tipped her forehead against the glass. Oh, hello there, ma'am. I'm sorry to trouble you, but I'm afraid... I'm afraid I'm lost... My daughter lives around here somewhere. Her name is... Her name is... Jolene! Her name is Jolene! Jolene. Ah, yes, what a pretty name. I knew a Jolene once. She was... She gave her head a hard shake and massaged her temples. Her eyes clouded over. She looked at Mom and smiled brightly. Oh, hello there, young woman. I'm afraid I'm lost. Mom? I grabbed her wrist. Mom, look at me. She turned, breathing hard through her nose, her lips clamped together in a thin line. Behind her, Grand gripped the window and wheezed. Mom grimaced, and I took her hand. It's not her. It's not. You said so yourself. She nodded but I could tell she was coming apart. Grant coughed again, and this time it left her in a long, wet hack with a rattle so deep that I felt it in my lungs. She wiped her mouth with the back of her hand, and it came away spotted in blood. Her brow furrowed as she looked at it, a string of spit leaking from her lip. I'm not well. Where's my oxygen? I can't. I can't breathe. Please give me my oxygen, will you? Mom turned back to her. I don't have your oxygen. Grand slapped the window. You have it in there, don't you, you little bitch? I know you do. You are always hiding things from me, Jolene. Always stealing my money and spending it on yourself. Buying all those fancy clothes. Acting like you didn't take it. Like it just grew legs and walked off on its own. Her eyes hardened. You came out wrong, you know that? Even as a baby, you were hateful. Oh, the tantrums you threw. No matter how I tried to soothe you, you were always screaming. Screaming no matter what I did. I was never good enough for you. No, I, I, I never meant to. A sudden wash of light filled the car, dim at first, but then growing brighter. I turned around and my heart leaped. Mom, Mom, look, someone's coming. And they were. An SUV, or was it a truck? I couldn't tell, was easing to a stop ten yards back. The rain misted through the vehicle's headlights like twin swarms of mosquitoes. 
Help us, please, you have to help us. Mom was screaming too, twisting around in her seat as Grand's straightened next to her. I could no longer see her face, only a snatch of her blue-veined, mole-spotted torso. The snakes wriggled again, and the SUV blew past us in a great wheel of water. I watched the taillights disappear with a whimper. Grands let loose another hack and lowered her face back to the window. <gasps> I can't. I can't see anything. Her wheezing grew louder. Her fingers curled over the glass. Help me. Help me. Oh, Mom. Mom brushed the backs of Grand's knuckles with her fingertips. Grand's blinked. Joe? Joe, is that you? Yes, Mom, it's, it's me. Oh, Pumpkin, I've been looking everywhere for you. Where have you been? Why won't you let me in? I'm freezing. I want to, Mom. I do. It's just... It was then I spotted Mom's hand near the door handle. One finger wrapped loosely around the silver latch. The latch that was tilting back, the lock popping. Mom! I lurched for her too late. The door scissored open a crack, and Grand moved like a snake, darting and quick. She yanked the door open with one hand and grabbed Mom with the other. Mom snapped around to look at me with eyes that were wide and white. Nat. That was all she said, before Grand jerked her from the car. I sat there for an awful moment, stunned. Unable to move, unable to think. I stared through the now wide open door and was able to make out a rustle in the bushes across the road, a back and forth swish of palm fronds that didn't quite match the rhythm of the rain. A shriek rang out. Mom's shriek. Followed by another, one that didn't sound human. My heart fluttered in my chest. I scrambled for the door and yanked it shut, locked it, and fell back into my seat, breathing hard, hyperventilating. Spots swam through my vision. For a moment, I thought about running. For a big girl, I was pretty fast. But there was no way I'd be able to outrun whatever this thing was. Not when it had snatched Mom so quickly. Grand's cry came again, and my bladder clenched in response. I didn't want to die. Suddenly, my life, shitty as it was, looked pretty good compared to the alternative. I wanted to be back home in my bed, buried beneath the covers. I wanted to shut my eyes and pretend this was all a bad dream. But it wasn't. And I was next. It didn't take long for Grands to return, that clicking noise I'd heard earlier working its way toward me through the thrashing rain. It sounded like one of the velociraptors from Jurassic Park, like death. When she landed on the hood in a crouch, I nearly peed myself. She swayed in front of the windshield with eyes that were no longer colored, but fully black. Inky webs of rainwater bled from the corners. Dark fluid stained the creases of her nose. Her jaw was a mess of blood, as was her chest. She made no motion to wipe it away. The rain did it for her. She just remained, crouched there, looking at me like I was a lab rat. Like I was the one on display, even though she was the naked one. Even though I could see raindrops leaking off the sparse triangle of pubic hair between her thighs. She smiled and licked her teeth. Mm, be a good girl, Natalie. Come give your grand some sugar. My stomach churned. I didn't move an inch. It was a line from my childhood. Something she'd say after buying me an ice cream cone or a pack of Mike and Ikes for a Sunday matinee. I'd thank her, and she'd bring her cheek low and pat it once, twice. 
Come give your grand some sugar. Now, now, Natalie. You can't stay in there forever. I'll get you sooner or later. We can do it the easy way, or... <sighs> Her smile widened. Well, you know... Go away. Please, just go away. You always were a stubborn one, weren't you? You got that nasty little trait from your mother. I didn't have time to respond before she slammed her head against the windshield. The glass splintered. She struck again and again, the window spiderwebbing wider with each crunch, crunch, crunch. Then her hand was through and reaching for me. Blood wound down her arm as it stretched past the dash and over the seat, all the way to my neck. It paused and rose higher, the pads of her fingers brushing tenderly over my jaw and ears. Ah, how I've missed you, Natalie. I wanted it to be her. I'd never wanted something more, but it wasn't. I squelched my eyes shut and shook my head. You're not her. You're not my grands. No. But I'm close enough. Her fingers dug into my neck, then wound entirely around it. I heard her knuckles creak and groan. I gasped for air, fighting until my vision blurred and my pulse thumped in my ears. The last thing I'd remember was the roar of an engine coming from somewhere, of cold halogen filling the cabin along with the smell of exhaust. And then I was gone. The deep chug of pistons and diesel woke me, followed by a light pressure on my shoulder. The weight felt like a hand. Easy. Hey, take it easy. Grand's hand. I snapped upright and dug my nails into warm flesh. Where is she? The old lady. Tell me she's gone. Did you see her? Or my mom? Where's my mom? Ouch. Shit. Jesus. Take it easy. You're, you're fine. Y'all called for tow, right? I rubbed my eyes and tried to clear the haze. The man came into focus, a dim shadow sitting behind the wheel of a truck, a toothpick working out from beneath a thick mustache. In front of him, through a windshield streaked in dust and a field of dead insects, the night road washed away, devoured by a pair of headlights. Look, sweetheart, I don't know what sort of trouble y'all got into out here, but... You're the only one in that car when I showed up, and you weren't looking so hot. I thought about calling for an ambulance, but you looked bad enough that I figured I'd better get you to the hospital myself. I snatched his arm. We have to go back. We were attacked. There was this thing. My mom, she, she... My throat swelled. I buried my face in my hands. Oh my God, she's dead. Whoa, come on now. Don't do that to yourself. I called the police the minute I showed up. They'll be there shortly. They'll find your mom. I'm sure she just wandered off somewhere. It happens sometimes with head injuries. You just rest up and... The sound of the tires slamming up against the wheel wells drowned him out. A sick thud followed by a dry crunch. The truck's air brakes popped with a steady psst. Holy hell! That deer came out of nowhere. I've never seen one move that fast before. He trailed off. I followed his gaze and sucked in a breath. There was a girl standing in the middle of the road, completely naked. 
Maybe five if I were to guess, with flaxen hair and soft white skin. She had her hands clasped neatly at the waist. It can't be. Who is that? The girl smiled, and he ran the back of his hand across his face and sniffed. It's my daughter, but she's dead. A woozy wave of adrenaline flooded my veins. I leaned across the seat and yanked the man toward me by the collar of his shirt. Listen to me. That girl, that thing out there, isn't your daughter, okay? His eyes rimmed with tears. His mouth hung slack. I tightened my grip. Please, don't look at her. Don't stop driving. And whatever you do, don't let her in. When it's your birthday, it's the perfect time to make your way back to your hometown. Hang out with friends and family, celebrate your big day. But in this tale, shared with us by author T.J. Hollow, we meet a man whose celebration is altered somewhat by a call from his former boss. He wants him to stop by the office just for old time's sake. I join Jeff Clement and Sarah Thomas in performing this tale. So remember, sometimes it's better to look forward and not back. And of course, when the past calls, don't answer. Sometimes the past comes calling when you don't expect it. A mention of a name. Even a small memento can bring memories rushing back like a joint popping back into place. It feels like something returning to where it belongs after you've forgotten what it was like to have it there. But its return to its natural state feels strange somehow. That is how I felt when I received the phone call just yesterday as I drove back to my old home in northern Pennsylvania. When my phone started ringing, I jumped with surprise. I'd been zoning out from driving back and forth up and down on the endless hills of this forever road. Besides, no one ever called me. I picked up my phone from the seat next to me. The caller ID took me by surprise. No data. Wasn't the point of this thing to tell me who was calling so I would know a scammer from a friend who just got my number? Shaking my head, I answered the phone. I could use the company, even if it was a robot trying to tell me that my car warranty was about to expire. Hello? Hello, is this Jeremy? The voice sounded so familiar, but I, I couldn't place it. Definitely not a robocall, but there was too much distortion to fully make it out. Uh, yes, uh, this is him. Who am I speaking to? Come on, I thought for sure you'd remember me. I sat for a second in silence, racking my brain to find a place for that voice. Was it my friend Peter's father? I'd only spoken to him once, and I didn't see any reason for him to be calling me. 
Perhaps Dr. John, my family doctor as a child? It was my birthday, after all. Then it hit me. I smacked myself in the forehead for not thinking of it sooner. Oh, oh, Mr. Johnson from the Ferguson Call Center. How could I forget? I hadn't worked at that place in over a decade. I'd hardly even thought about it since I went to college for a real job. Sure, I'd had fun times there, but it was just one of those summer jobs that you leave behind and forget about once it's over. Yeah, I knew you'd remember us, Jeremy. Listen, I heard through the grapevine you're coming back to town to see some old friends for your birthday. Is that right? Yeah, I'm driving back now. Should be there in a few hours if these hills ever end. <laughs> it's my niece's birthday as well. We figured this year we'd celebrate together. Capital, son. Just capital. You should drop by to visit us at the old brick and mortar. There'll be plenty of people happy to see you. Sure, I'll drop by. See how the old place is doing? Place is still standing, son. And I got a kid. The distortion ramped up, rendering all but the barest tone of his voice audible. Uh, what, what was that? Uh, sorry? Uh, sorry, the, the call's acting up. His voice came slightly more into focus. Oh, never mind. I'll see you when you get here. Don't think I'd be allowed to tell you anyway. Bye. <laughs> okay, I see you then. And I hung up. The rest of the drive went a little quicker knowing that I had some old friends to see. When I finally arrived at my parents' house, they and the rest of the family were ecstatic to see me. I was kept too busy from work most of the time to visit, and I'll admit I hadn't been the best at keeping in contact. The event was catered, and the hours passed by quickly, until I suddenly remembered the call from Mr. Johnson. Oh, hey Ma, I'm gonna go visit some friends at Ferguson's. Guess they heard I was coming into town. I gave my mother a hug. I haven't heard of that old place since you left for college. They must not be doing so well. That or the fact I never go out that way. It's rather out of the way. Her brow wrinkled in thought for a second. I don't know how they might have heard you were coming to town. I don't think I've ever met them. From the grapevine, I guess. Hard to tell with Mr. Johnson. <laughs> Bye, Mom. Love you. The drive to the building was a strange one. Things looked so different, and yet the same. More houses, but not many. A few missing, now vacant lots for sale, like teeth that had fallen out and were waiting expectantly to be replaced. The roads still had many of the same potholes I swear I could remember to the letter. It felt different, though, as a somewhat successful doctor to be driving this old road I'd last been on as a destitute teenager. I'd taken the job to save for college as my parents didn't have enough to help me on my way. That was why I'd taken a job so distant. Even with a bike, it had been a long journey. When I pulled into the parking lot, I was shocked. The building was nothing like I remembered. Sure, it still had red bricks and large old-fashioned windows, but the similarities ended there. Ivy climbed up the edge of the structure to the roof, and the wall was filled with holes. I looked through the shattered windows into the dingy rooms beyond and barely repressed a shiver. 
What the hell had happened here? They... they must have moved sites. Maybe that's what he had been trying to tell me when the call quality had dropped. I combed through my recent calls to ask him what this was all about, but with all the people I'd called to catch up with lately, I couldn't find which one was his. I shook my head and put my phone back in my pocket. He'd call when it got closer to closing time, and then I'd be out of here. It looked like I had some time to kill. <laughs> You've seen better days, haven't you, old friend? I spoke to the crooked sign for Ferguson's, as if it could reply. There was no one around to hear me, and why not? The building had been a good place for a teenager looking anywhere he could for money. It made it possible to move on to better things, so why not indulge my imagination a little? I paced around the parking lot aimlessly, kicking my heels on the asphalt with every step, waiting for the call that would tell me where to go from here. It didn't come, and I found myself facing back toward the doors of the derelict old building. I felt a strange tug enter me and slowly fill me until I felt I was about to burst. Ah, fine, I'll go inside. Just one last time. It might have been a morbid curiosity, but it beats standing around here. I'd explored plenty of ruined, abandoned buildings in my time, like the old school in the neighboring township, rotting but unburied. I stepped inside those open doors and was immediately beset by the musty smells of mold and mildew. I gagged and pulled my shirt over my nose, which helped somewhat. The pictures hanging in the entry hallway had all fallen down and lay leaning back against the wall or face down on the floor. For some reason, they reminded me of the patrons of a bar near closing time, and I chuckled to myself. <laughs> I wonder they didn't take these things with them to the new site. They would have been worth some money, so it could be that the call sender wasn't in business at all, new site or no. Maybe Mr. Johnson was trying to tell me his home address where he'd invited some of our old co-workers. In the midst of these wonderings, I wasn't paying much attention to my surroundings. I was brought back with a crunch under my foot. I looked down before I thought I might not want to see what I had stepped on. It was a decomposing rat, near to finishing its journey back to the earth. I stepped off of it and felt some bile rise for a second before settling back down, as I turned my thoughts away from tiny broken bones and what liquids must now be on my shoe. I wiped my shoe on a nearby patch of moss and moved on. I gazed into the rooms I passed curiously. One room looked like a miniature nature habitat, moss growing on the floor amid pieces of ceiling tile and broken glass. Another room was stacked with teetering towers of tables and chairs, as if someone had just left them there and never come back. I was surprised that there was no graffiti. Most places that were abandoned attracted teenagers who liked to leave their mark, which usually included triple sixes and swear words. This place just looked forgotten, like a bird in a quiet room, lying cold and undisturbed on the floor of its cage. I sidestepped some holes in the flooring and came to the next room. 
It held a strange beauty. Beams of sunlight shone in from wide, broken windows, with birds fluttering about to somewhere above the ceiling tiles. It was an island of peace in an ocean of decay. This had been Dave Johnson's office. I'd come here often to chat with him about particularly difficult customers or just to shoot the breeze during my breaks. He always seemed to have time, even for a whiny teenager. I smiled wistfully and moved on. A sudden distant clatter startled me, and I froze in place. Was somebody in here? Some small-time gangster selling drugs? A squatter? A shudder passed through me. If there's one thing I'd learned during urban exploration, it's to steer clear of any people you might encounter in one of these places. You never know what kind of person you're going to run into, so why take that chance? I should have left right then, but it was quiet again. Maybe it was a bird that had knocked a knickknack off of somebody's desk? After a minute of silence, I assumed that was the case and continued on, down the hallway. I did hear something, but I couldn't make it out. It was too high-pitched for speech, but it could be… music? It was coming from the direction of the meeting room and I felt it drawing me forward. I hardly glanced at the rooms I passed anymore, only glancing away from those double doors at the end of the hall to watch for nails and broken glass. The sound became clearer and clearer. It was definitely music, maybe from a music box playing a familiar melody I couldn't place. I had to get closer. I pushed open one of the heavy wooden doors and nearly had my heart stop when I saw a person shape in the corner. I jerked my hand off the door and it closed with a thump, which I immediately regretted. I didn't think they'd seen me. They hadn't even turned around when the door squeaked open. Maybe I was just overreacting, seeing human shapes just because I was expecting to. I eased the door open a crack and could tell immediately that it wasn't a person at all. It was a large mannequin standing next to the counter facing away from me. I breathed a sigh of relief. Mannequins weren't my favorite thing, but it was a far cry from a man with a knife waiting to stab me. The music played on, still muffled by the thick door and I pushed open the door to hear it fully. My focus lapsed off the music by what I saw in front of me. The conference table sat in its old place, but that wasn't what I was looking at. Rather, I was looking at what was in the chairs. Every chair but two had a fully clothed mannequin sitting in it. I felt my stomach drop, somehow sickened, as I walked around the table with morbid curiosity swelling in me. I saw that every one of the mannequins had been arranged looking at each other. Their stiff hands lay on pens and papers before them, or raised up as if making a point. The one at the head of the table 
a darker-skinned one, looked caught in the middle of straightening a stack of yellowed papers. I felt like I'd walked into a scene frozen in time. What kind of sicko would go through this much work in an abandoned building to simulate an office meeting? The one in the corner was even putting a tea bag in a mug, for goodness sake. Still, a strange sense of deja vu crept into me at the surreal sight. Those clothes looked familiar somehow. The purple Christmas sweater on the black-haired one on the far side. The green threadbare sweater vest of the tall one with the brown hair. The navy business suit on the figure at the head of the table with the rotary phone off its hook. I was taken aback by the realization that came rushing in. They looked just like my old co-workers, caught in the middle of a meeting, with only me unaccounted for. This had to be some kind of prank put on by my old co-workers. At least I hoped. No, it was impossible that anyone but them had set it up. What were the chances that some mischievous teens had come in here with a bunch of mannequins and not only dressed them in the right clothes, but placed them at the right places at the table? I shook my head to dispel images of monkeys typing on typewriters and took a closer look. One loop around the lot of them, then two. On every pass, I noticed more details. A pair of dangling earrings, cat hair on a sweater, fresh coffee in every cup. This was getting ridiculous. Why go to this level of detail? I poked one of the mannequins in the shoulder. Honestly, the unsettling presence of the mannequins would have been enough to put me on edge. There is something unnatural about things that look like people. Almost perfect, but for missing breath. I hated it. I called out suddenly, a loud noise to flush out any people dressed as mannequins, to physically startle them enough to see them jump. Nothing. The quiet was really getting to me. Guys, if you're gonna surprise me, just get it over with already. Still nothing. I eyed the walls and the ceiling for any hidden camera, but came up dry. What the hell was going on? Any prankster worth his stuff would have leaped out by now, not kept me waiting for so long. The music entered my awareness once more. I'd stopped noticing it, but the music had been playing this whole time, just on the edge of my consciousness, and I recognized it. A tinkling rendition of Happy Birthday to You jingled menacingly through the open door into the next room. Was that where they were all hiding, chuckling to themselves at their prank? It was the only rational explanation. Anything else, anything else. I gulped, suddenly aware of my dry mouth. I tiptoed past the mannequins at the long table, towards the open door of the break room. I could see nothing through the opening. I needed to cross that threshold to solve this mystery. When I finally could bring myself to do it, I looked into the room 
and saw a simple music box sitting comfortably next to a chocolate cake with a large lit candle. The song played to a close, and it was quiet once more. I stared at it, and then I laughed my heart out. All that for this? No jumping out to scare my skin off? No laughter at my expense? No revealing the hidden cameras? My heart rate began to slow. Ah, thank you, you sick freaks. <laughs> now where are you hiding? As soon as the words left my lips, there was another loud crash behind me, and I jerked around, still reacting with the adrenaline left in my system. Every mannequin in that room was now looking in my direction, all facing fully towards me. And they were now stiffly holding different poses. Many crumpled into themselves in a paroxysm of mirth, fists in the middle of striking their legs or the table. There was no way someone had rearranged all of those mannequins so quickly. It was impossible. The one with the sweater vest had its head thrown back in the attitude of uproarious laughter. Just like Andy. Its mouth was now stretched wide open to unleash its silent laugh. Goosebumps erupted all over my skin, and that's when I knew. My co-workers had been right here the whole time. The uncanny valley had stretched too wide, and I had had enough of it. My knees trembled like they were about to buckle, but my legs were moving almost before I thought of running. I clipped the standing mannequin who had been making tea as I ran past and nearly fell over. The thing was frighteningly solid, much more than a store mannequin. These things were definitely something else. As I heaved aside the double doors from the conference room, I heard something I couldn't explain. A rapid noise, an off-tempo sound reminiscent of a thousand fingers drumming started up on every surface around me. As I ran, more frantic than ever, the whole building began quivering intensely. A ceiling tile, then two, more were shaken down onto the floor. I ran down the hallway, just barely missing the holes in the floor with my feet. There were more of them now, in the floor, in the walls, and through each I could see blank eyes pressed against the cracks, watching me. I was having trouble keeping my balance with how violently the building was vibrating. The gaze of all of those eyes from all of those holes was filling me with a strange dread. I didn't know what they were watching me for. Were they simply interested, or were they about to break through the walls and the floor? Did they want to keep me here? I tripped headlong as I passed a hole at ankle level. My hand stretched out to catch myself, collided with the glass exit door and shattered it. I didn't feel a thing. I was back on my feet in a second. I couldn't see whether it was an arm that had sprung from the hole or a painting on the floor. I was too filled with adrenaline and pain to care. I hurriedly fumbled my keys out of my pocket 
started the car and took off, not looking back. I have been blindly driving through the night, back south to my apartment. Though the world around me no longer shakes, I still find myself trembling. I got a call while rocketing down the dark road from an unknown number. I didn't answer it. Upon stopping just now at a 24-hour gas station to fill up my empty tank, I finally opened my voicemail to listen to the message. I heard the sounds of a room full of uproarious laughter, distorted as before, but the words came through clearly, with none of their previous warmth. Why don't you drop in again sometime, Jeremy? We miss you already. In our final tale, we meet a woman walking home from work, at night, alone. Ah, a horror story in the making. And when she discovers, in fact, that she isn't alone out there, she's forced to deal with an ever-increasing sense of panic. But in this tale, shared with us by author Lucretia Vasti, the woman recalls advice her late father gave to her, Advice which leads to some rather unexpected consequences. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Graham Rowett, Nicole Doolin, Sarah Thomas, and Mick Wingert. So if you find yourself in a precarious situation, draw on your past experience. And like this woman, I'm sure you'll know what to do. last hour is always the longest. Until it's over. Finally. My elbows do butterfly, and I bend backward until I hear my spine pop. Ugh. Damn. Tiff makes a disgusted face, and Bruce lets out an ugh, even though he looks impressed. It's 8 p.m., my shift is over. See you tomorrow. I'm out of the diner before Barbara has the chance to yell at me to help clean the kitchen. I cleaned both the bar and pantry by myself the other night, so I'll be damned if I'm wasting one more minute of freedom in this place. I have stuff to do. I have a bottle of wine and two fingers of cognac waiting for me at home, alongside a whole square foot of plaster on the bathroom ceiling that I haven't stared at yet. Well, I can't say I stared at the other square feet of plaster in my apartment either, because the damn waterworks keep blurring my sight. Dad died two months ago. Yeah, what of it? People's dads die all the time. 
most cases, unfairly so. Accidents happen, sickness occurs. Even old age creeps upon them if nothing else does the trick. Everybody dies. We're all living towards it. Life is an incurable illness, and death is the one non-negotiable. Be it sooner or later, we all must give back the earth and water we're made of. I still think it's unfair. He's gone too soon. Sure, he drank and he smoked and he had type 2 diabetes, but he was sane and thriving and so full of life. The whole family thought he'd live to see a hundred. At my father's funeral, when people offered me their condolences, they added that he's gone to a better place. Can somebody please tell me the area code to this better place? Today is his birthday, and I'd really like to call him. The days have gotten shorter. 30 more minutes and it will be completely dark outside. I notice this just when I turn left to take the shortcut to my place and remember, oh yeah, the street light between the one at the corner and the one across my building burnt out two nights ago. Funny how I used to think three streetlights is overkill for a short and narrow alley leading to a dead end. Until now. There is a distance of approximately 10 yards from one light to the next, so technically, I'll be walking in the dark forever. Doesn't matter. I turn the corner and walk towards my building at the end of the alley, like I always do. I'm not afraid. Until I am. Because somebody's following me. I was 14. Sierra, the neighbor I was babysitting, was nine. We were watching Codename Kids Next Door. When Sierra suddenly felt empowered by one of number five's moves and jumped off the couch. Let me show you what daddy taught me. My face must have done the thing it does when it's confused. Sierra interpreted it as poor hearing. I want you to attack me. But just grab my arm, because I'm not ready for the other stuff yet. I had years of puberty on her. I was taller, broader, heavier, and way stronger, with or without the volleyball practice. <laughs> I laughed at her and tried explaining why that would be a bad idea. But Sierra looked upset, and her parents were paying me a generous $50 per hour. Drats. Fine, then. Yell if it hurts. Part of me wanted to teach her a lesson. She was cocky because Daddy taught her a self-defense trick. In my head, whatever that trick was, it wouldn't fly in the real world because of two indisputable factors. One, she was a bony nine-year-old girl. Two, she practiced with her dad, a.k.a. the one human being who had it in his genetic makeup to treat Sierra like she was made of silk. I reached my kid neighbor in one big stride and grabbed her by the arm with the same force I spiked cannonballing volleyballs in a fence mode. Next thing I knew, my knees hit the floorboards and my arm was about to pop out of my shoulder socket. Told you it was cool. I still remember Sierra's nine-year-old knee pressing into the back with the delicacy of an iron rod. Want me to show you how I did it? 
I didn't. I wanted to know how she did it from the same role model she knew it from. I asked my dad that night if he knew some self-defense tricks I could use. He didn't even turn a look at me. Real Madrid was playing Barcelona. I sometimes remember the yellows and greens reflecting off his face more vividly than I do the color of his eyes. You're my daughter, Magpie. He took a sip of his Budweiser. You'll know what to do. Except, I didn't. I didn't know what to do a year later when a transfer student cornered me in a girl's bathroom and took my wallet. Nor did I know what to do two years after that when Brad Clearwater wanted us to leave prom early. I should have taken that darn self-defense class. Lord knows I walked past that poster in the gym every day for two months straight until they replaced it with some BCAA advertisement. I can still see the poster before me. I thought about it, long and hard. Even had half a brain to take a picture of it. But every time I scrolled through my gallery, Dad's words fogged up both the title and the phone number I wanted to call. You're my daughter. You'll know what to do. Okay, Dad. See if you were right. I'm at the first streetlight. My stalker is male. I'm certain of it. It's in the way he walks. His, his step is light. I think he's wearing sneakers, not boots. I'm still traumatized by the first 10 minutes of American History X, so I hope I'm not wrong regarding his footwear. We are alone. He's following my footsteps exactly, which means he's too focused on me to just be randomly heading in the same direction. Also, he's far enough to hope that I can't hear him. This isn't his first rodeo, I'm sure. I never experienced a more visceral urge to run, but I'm doing my best to not quicken my pace and to not start rummaging through my bag while he still sees me well. I walk past the first streetlight, and he pauses just a little, waiting for me to leave the pyramid of brightness and enter the territory of the burnt bulb. Here comes the hard part. I need him to wait. I need him to wait at least 10 seconds before he pounces. This is my fault. I was stupid. I sensed him too late. I didn't have time to prepare. All I can do is hope that he'll wait until I reach the dead streetlight. I'm in. I'm surrounded by darkness. I never thought I'd be reaching for the black box in the ripped inner pocket of my purse while walking, but this is everything I have on me. I guess I could hold my keys and my knuckle, pretend call the boyfriend I don't have and ask him to meet me at the front door go back in time and take that darn self-defense class over the acting one? You're my daughter. This part's tricky. As a former wearer of glasses, I am quite skilled in this endeavor, provided I have time, light, and a mirror on my hands, which I don't at the moment. The guy following me picks up the pace. 
He knows I can hear him now, and by the sound of it, he doesn't care anymore. I have to hurry. One is in, now I have to apply the other one. You'll know what to do. I laugh. <laughs> My stalker stops. I laugh again. <laughs> I contract my stomach to push the laughter out. I laugh like the witches in cartoons do, the ones that sound credible even to kids over 14. My fight or flight converts to laughter. It has to. It's the only weapon I have on me. My stalker resumes stepping towards me, albeit unsurely. Now... This part is important. I'm almost at the third streetlight. The umbrella of brightness caresses my outline. I need this to work. If it doesn't, I'm screwed. My laughter dies down, but my shoulders still shake in its aftermath. I walk slower. I drop my bat. It's a good thing I let my hair down when I left work. I stop short of entering the light. The guy following me takes another step. Then another one. I'm coughing the remnants of laughter out of my windpipe. My stalker basks in his confusion, but is growing impatient. It's now or never. My elbows do the butterfly, and I bend backward until I hear my spine pop. I look at him upside down with wide eyes and the nastiest smile I can force my face into. Hello, dinner! The guy screams. He drops the thing he was holding, falls on his butt, and crawls away until he remembers he has legs. He keeps screaming as he gets up and runs for his life, but no more than 20 feet when he slams into a trash can, which he couldn't have seen due to lack of light. Jackpot. My spine cracks again when I straighten my back. It worked. Gosh darn it, it worked. Heck yeah. Who needs self-defense glasses when you got pricey glow-in-the-dark contacts? How do you like dem apples, random creep? Uh, I turn to grab my bag, and right as I bend over, the creep flies over my head. Huh, the adrenaline has me seeing things. These contacts are no joke. Who the hell made them, Netflix? There's a smash and a thump, followed by a gurgle. My eyesight might wear a disguise, but my hearing surely doesn't. I forget I have a bag and look in the direction my mind was surely playing tricks on me from. At the end of the alley, beyond the sphere of light, are two identical paper dumpsters. 
I know these bins well, and because I know what they look like during the daytime, I can make out both their overall sky blue as well as their white triangles made of arrows beneath the label's paper. The dumpster on the right looks like it always does, too full. Amazon packaging is dripping out of it like ice cream in a waffle cone during summer. The one on the left is just as full. However, instead of mirroring its counterpart like the factory intended to, there's a dark liquid cutting both the word paper as well as the recycling symbol in half. The source of the liquid is resting amongst heaps of cardboard, like someone wanted to dispose of it but couldn't find the adequate bin nearby. Hello, dumpster rental? What are your rules and regulations regarding human waste? No, ma'am, not the biological functions. I'm talking remains. My lunch is coming back to me. My stalker is bent at the waist in the wrong direction, with one knee touching his shoulder. That's not even the worst part. We've reversed roles. He is the one looking at me upside down now, with his neck resting on the edge of the dumpster. Thank goodness the lid is being held up by the rest of the bin's contents. Otherwise, it would have slammed down on his throat. Another gurgle. I don't know what to do. He's still alive. What do people do in these situations? Barfing won't help either of us, especially him. Call for help. Okay, help? Uh, calling. Yes, I, I need to call for help. What do people call for help with? Mouth? I need to keep my mouth shut. My lunch won't have it any other way. Uh, what else to call with? Another gurgle. The dark liquid is carpeting the asphalt beneath the paper dumpster. That'd be enough ink to stamp every piece of cardboard in every dumpster in town. Phone. I can call for help with my phone. My phone is in my bag, and my bag is... Who the fuck are you? My bag is the least of my worries. The gurgling mess resting in the dumpster shows signs of life beyond the twitching. There's terror in his eyes. Absurd amounts of it. And the worst part is, it's not me it's directed at. This ain't your turf, newbie. Water freezes at zero degrees Celsius. The human body is 60% water. I don't know what the other 40% is made of, but I am 100% frozen, and I don't think it's the weather. Look at me. I do. I turn slowly like it'd make a difference. Like I don't want to startle the animal who's already hyper-aware of my presence. There's the shape of a man approaching. I can't see much due to the burnt streetlight limiting my sight, but what I can see is enough to have me wanting to scream my head off. The form of the guy is by no means intimidating. He's quite thin, just an inch or two taller than me, which would make him several inches shorter than my stalker. However, in the grand scheme of things, 
That means absolutely nothing because his eyes glow in the dark. And I have a strong hunch that he's not wearing any contacts. Where'd you come from? My mind-muscle connection is rebooting. I can think of no other thing to say than the truth. Work? Work? Wrong answer. What work? Who the fuck do you work for? He's coming closer. Shoulders puffed like the mane on an angry lion. Wait, hold on. I can explain. He steps into the light and stops ten feet from me. I was right. He is by no means big, but I'd rather confront a starving grizzly bear. He looks young, late teens to early twenties. His jaw is set like it can break through iron, and although there's little to no muscle on his bony frame, the veins on his arm are as thick as my fingers. Those eyes, though. He looks at me like he can see everything going through my head in full HD. I'm a bug crushed in a microscope slide. This guy sees every pore, every blemish, every thread in my denim jacket. I've never felt more naked in my life. Well? I flinch. He raises an eyebrow. I got lost. You got lost? Yeah, I was on a um on my way home. And where's that? Crap. Not here. His background moves. Three more silhouettes approach us. The lion stands still as the silhouettes come into the light. Two guys, one girl. All different ages, different body compositions, heights, and skin colors. Same eyes, though. Same ungodly species, whatever they are. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Talk already! Stop it, said. You're scaring her. She might not know where she is. The girl, or woman, to be more precise, holds her hands up and takes the careful approach. She looks to be the oldest in the group, which is not to say that she is old. There are no wrinkles on her face whatsoever. But her dark hair is heavily peppered with gray strands. We're not going to hurt you. The woman glares at the one called Sed. The lion backs off a little. She advances towards me like I'm a scared dog, and she... the pound employee. I'm Saskia. That's Cedric. The lion looks displeased with having been introduced. Those two are Jake and Dyson. <laughs> Jake greets with a hand gesture... Dyson is as still as stone. Which district are you from? I look at the woman like she's speaking a foreign language. 
She tries again. The city has been districted into 12 areas of operation. Every group hunts within its own district. This one's ours. Which one's yours? I open my mouth and then close it again. The woman turns to the guy called Cedric. See, dumbass? Told you she doesn't know. The hell do I care if she knows or not? Rules are rules. No one but the circuits can hunt in District 9. If she didn't know, tough shit. You're either smart or you become an example. Cedric stomps towards me. I back away fast and my back hits the stalker in the face. He moans and I yelp. I'm surrounded and in deep trouble. Cedric looks dumbfounded. The hell's wrong with you? Dyson chuckles. For Pete's sake, can you let me handle this? The woman, Saskia, as she introduced herself, grabs the little lion by the shoulder and shoves him so hard behind herself, he almost topples over the other two. Look, I mean it. We won't hurt you. We just want to know who you are and where you're from. I can't tell her I'm from the building right beside us, so I grab for the next best thing. I don't... I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. Saskia looks at her boys. Jake shrugs. The other two look impatient. When were you turned? Turned? Yes. When were you turned? When did you die? I laugh. (laughs) It sounds like the love child between a sneeze and a cough, but it's as close to a laugh as I can get. The woman's face softens. You poor dear. You just turned, didn't you? Whatever conclusion she drew, it sounds good to me. I don't say a thing. (sighs) Saskia sighs. I swear, if I ever find the hound who turns people willy-nilly, I'll rip their head off. I've known the woman all of three minutes and can already tell she means it. If Cedric's strength is anything to go by, Saskia could probably punch somebody through a row of six houses. Okay. Saskia forgets the gentle approach and steps in front of me like she is about to touch me. To my horror, that's exactly what she does. And if I had any doubts before, which I didn't for obvious reasons, Saskia's hand is as cold as only dead people are. Oh my god, you poor dear. You're still warm. I shake her hand off. I'm counting my blessings that there's pity instead of suspicion on her face. This might sound crazy, but you're dead. Here goes nothing. My ultimate battle for survival. Activate acting lessons, part two. Come again? It's difficult to come to terms with it. 
It was difficult for all of us. Is this some kind of joke? I have no reason to joke around with you. I don't even know you. Who are you people? Where are the cameras? No cameras, unfortunately. This is real. And I'll explain everything. But you need to calm down first. Ask a mouse to be calm, surrounded by cats. I look briefly at the twitching human and the aura of bodily fluids surrounding the dumpster he's in. Have, have I been drugged? Oh, honey, I wish that were the case. But you are as sober as can be. <laughs> so sober, in fact, you'll never feel high or the state of ebriety ever again. I mutter something incomprehensible even to me. Apart from when you'll be feeding, that is. That takes me aback. These things eat? What exactly? Listen to me. This is going to be tough for you to hear, but if you still have love in your heart for your friends and family, as of right now, you are not allowed to go see them anymore. For their sake. Do you understand? This is important. Oh no! I shake my head so fast, I'm dizzying myself. No, 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 please stop. Whatever you're doing, please stop. This isn't funny. No, honey, I don't think this is funny at all. I haven't seen my husband and children in 16 years because I know that if I do, I'll forget the part of myself that's still human and let the monster take over. Oh, for fuck's sake, Sass, get on with it! One more word out of you, Cedric, and I'm shoving your head up your ass. Who are you people? Who sent you up to this? Calm down. I'll tell you everything you need to know, but you need to drop the hysterics. I do as I'm told. The moans coming from the dumpster turn to sobs. And I can't tell if they're asking for help or death. This city is divided into 12 districts. Each district is inhabited by a group of three to seven of us. You are currently in our district, which is the ninth. We are not allowed to go hunting outside of the ninth district unless it's absolutely vital and we get approval from a neighboring district to do so. Saskia pauses in anticipation of an inquiry. I got tons, but I'm not ready to speak my last words just yet. She takes my silence for comprehension. Hunting is a no-go during the daytime. A rule of thumb is from dusk to an hour until dawn. It used to be until dawn, but our kingpin decided it's too risky. We inhabit the sewers during the day. If you want, I can take you to the pipes where we nest so you can rest and feed in silence. Cedric finds his courage again. Hey, hey, Sass, watch it. I get you want to help, but we're not recruiting her. And what else do you suggest, smartass? Saskia turns her back to me. I'm not leaving her alone in the state she's in. There's four of us in one of the shittiest districts. Food is scarce. 
Dyson and I haven't fed in three days. Don't lie to me, boy. I've seen you devour a lung and a heart by St. Mary's Hospital mere hours ago. Cedric throws his arms in the air. Cancerous ones? That's like eating dirt sprinkled with protein supplements. What? All four pairs of milky eyes turned to me. I'm desperate for answers. Last words be damned. What are you guys? <laughs> Cedric snorts. Dyson nudges him. Oh, how silly of me. Sorry, honey, I forgot about this part. I thought you could tell. I can hear my breath increasing in speed and volume, which is probably a bad idea since I'm supposed to be dead and all. We're ghouls. There's a shallow attempt at speaking coming from my stalker. Whatever he's trying to say, I feel him. I hear little to nothing beyond the blood rushing in the space between my ears. There is neither fight or flight to be found in my system anymore. I feel hollow in my knees, my head, my stomach. The world is spinning and nausea hits me like I got a bullseye for a chest. Sweetie, are you okay? I'm so far from being okay, I forgot what the word entails. Sounds like an appropriate response, but before I could open my mouth to word it, my insights answer for me. The universe either hates my guts or has a very morbid sense of humor. If there is such a thing as the growl of the century, my stomach just made it. The heap of human in the paper dumpster whimpers, and to everybody's surprise, moves an arm. His right hand tries grabbing the edge of the dumpster to raise his neck off it. He looks like a drowning cat, reaching for something he can't see but knows is there. Both arms and a leg are flailing now, and it's a miracle, really. If the puddle of dread seeping into the asphalt beneath is anything to go by, the guy is investing his last drops of life in trying to move. Every cell in the man's being is loaded with fear, and judging by his line of sight, the main object of his fear is me. I almost forgot. My stalker thinks I'm one of them. You're hungry. Saskia backs away from me and gestures towards my stalker, like a butler guiding a visitor towards the dining room. Who cares? So are we. Cedric takes two steps forward, and so does Dyson. Jake looks unsure of what to do. Must I remind you what you were like when you turned? She's hungry. She needs to feed. So do we, Saskia. I don't know if you noticed, but we're running out of food. If the crime rate keeps dropping in this neighborhood, we'll have to hunt for honest civilians next. Oh, good. They have some sort of moral conscience. We'll figure it out. 
We always do. This district isn't even big enough for the four of us. Back when we recruited Dyson, the Overarch said we're one too many. Cedric turns to Dyson. No offense, brother. Uh. Dyson shrugs. But five of us? In District 9? Don't know about my mates here, but I didn't sign up for starvation. Saskia looks disappointed. We were six back when I let you join us. The district was bigger back then. Big enough for seven? Cedric bites the inside of his cheek. I await his rebuttal, but to my horror, it doesn't come. I want him to win the argument. I need him to win the argument. Cast me away. Let me flee. These creatures must have counterparts of the rogue sort, no? Are there no ghoul outcasts? If Saskia is upset by some ghoul turning other ghouls willy-nilly, as she put it, surely some districts must be oversaturated with Nightwalkers. Um, Milky eyes turn on me again. You guys can have them if you want. I point a shaky finger towards the dumpster. I mean, I I caused you guys enough trouble as it is. Consider this a token of apology or whatever. The following silence is heavy. Cedric and Saskia exchange a look. Dyson's frown deepens and Jake crosses his arms over his chest. It's in the air. I I said something wrong. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, like, really hungry. Like, super hungry. Like, hungrier than ever before. Uh, But I also don't want to get in your hair, so... No reaction. I could just leave. Go feed somewhere else. I think I can find another lowlife who has it coming, right? (laughs) Forcing out a chuckle minutes after pretending to be a scared newborn ghoul is bad acting. The action is progressing too fast. It's, It's not believable. Not even in a stageless setting. I'm too desperate and it shows. If this would have been my entry exam for theater school, I'd fail myself and put a ban on my name. You don't want the meal? Cedric sounds uncertain, but that question comes off of all his companions. They are awaiting my answer with held breaths, which probably doesn't count for much since their lungs must be raisins by now. Oh, no, I do. He smells... I look at the creep who stopped twitching seconds ago. There's bile at the back of my throat. Delicious. Go on, then. Saskia's tone of voice did a 180. She dropped the motherly attitude. If I thought I was dead meat before, this encouragement of hers sounds like the first nail in my coffin. Really, you guys, I'm okay. You earned this dinner. I mean, Cedric, was it? You're the one who caught the fellow, you ought to... I can share. That did it. I failed. They caught on. Cedric points his chin in the dinner's direction. I want to keep on arguing my point, but it's no use. They're on to me. 
The four of them are frozen in place, watching me drag myself closer to the dumpster. I walk slowly on foreign feet and borrowed energy. I stop in front of the dumpster, and the gastric acid bubbles up my esophagus something dreadful. My stalker's eyes are bloodshot. There are trails of blood leading from his mouth to his nostrils, and then further down into his eyes and beyond, coating his hairline. He's young, younger than me, not a boy anymore, but still a few hardships away from being a man. I don't know which one of us will die first, even though he's the hurt one. It doesn't matter, creep or no creep, I have a fellow human by my side who is about to share my fate, and the thought gives me some sort of comfort. I have my back to the four ghouls, so I attempt to smile and reassure the dying individual as quietly as I can that it would be over soon. The guy's already bulging eyes grow even bigger. His mouth moves like that of a fish outside water, and I know he recognizes me as one of his own. I nod slowly, and just as I'm about to turn on my heels and confess my still-beating heart to the four corpses, Cedric speaks anew. Go on, newbie. You know what to do. The sky falls on my head. Not like a boulder would, but rather like cold, heavy rain. Shocking, yes, yet not heavy enough to make me succumb under its pressure. Quite the contrary. It it feels invigorating. Empowering. Inspiring. Cedric is right. I know what to do. Of course I do. And, unfortunately for my victim, he doesn't. Because, lo and behold, no sooner do I launch at his neck than he finds his voice one last time. He's loud. Deafening, even. Maybe I'd be just as loud if somebody would bite my Adam's apple off. I manage to puncture through his skin on the first try, but the blood coming out of his throat makes it slippery. My teeth have to take hold of his Adam's apple three times before it's clamped within my jaw. I start pulling at it. It's tough. Not like beef jerky, but like tire rubber. My jaw hurts, but I'm determined. My stalker screams, gurgles, and the uncoordinated fingers of a still-operating hand try pushing my head off. I try to push my head off of him as well, with his windpipe in my mouth. My teeth are slipping again, so I chomp down one last time and jerk my head backwards so violently that I succeed. I turn to my undead audience with a human trachea and tongue in my mouth, which, for all intents and purposes, do not belong to me. None of the four looks phased. Saskia even starts clapping. I must say, you give dedication a whole different meaning. I'm shaking from my head to my toe, 
and it's only then I realize I can see a bit clearer with my left eye. A contact lens fell out. It's over. I dropped the contents of my mouth with a pathetic wet plop. Dyson and Jake are by me before my knees give out. They grab me by the arms and start dragging me as Cedric and Saskia lead the way. The city runs by in slow motion. We walk past numerous animals of my species who are too preoccupied with their inner worlds, be it via headphones or mobile devices, to notice us. Even if they weren't, calling out for help doesn't even cross my mind. I think about it briefly, but it's like one thinks about the likelihood of ghouls being real. You know, somebody came up with the notion, but it's too ridiculous to think it holds ground outside of books and TV shows. Everybody dies. We're all living towards it. Life is an incurable illness, and death is the one non-negotiable. Be it sooner or later, we all must give back the earth and water we're made of. I'll die tonight. But I'll die knowing that I fought for my right to live. I fought in the past hour more than some people fight in their entire lives. I went from being stalked to finding out that ghouls are real to committing murder all in one evening. If I'm allowed a death wish, I wish for my flesh to give these monsters a stomachache. We arrive at an underground club. It's sudden. We flew, for all I know. The patrons of this club are drinking stuff the color of motor oil and dancing to music that only sounds good to people tripping on illegal substances. The people don't seem to have anything in common except for the dead, pearly eyes. And perhaps body temperature, too. But I can't reach out to confirm that suspicion. My arms are stuck with Dyson and Jake. I have no tears to cry or curses to unload. I don't even feel nauseous anymore or burdened with the sudden urge to go to the bathroom. I'm even beyond anger at this point. As the party parts in the middle to let us pass, I wonder briefly, why me? But it's only briefly, I'm not bitter about it. We stop in front of a flight of three stairs in the shape of a semicircle. There's a platform of sorts at the top of the stairs, which leads to a black leathered couch. There's a roll of ghouls in front of the couch, all of which look our way as we approach. Somebody is sitting on the couch. I can't see them because my eyes are cast down. But I don't need to see who it is to know that that must be the kingpin Saskia and Cedric talked about earlier. The mother of the Ninth District opens the discussion regarding me. Sir, we have a situation. <laughs> the row of ghouls waiting for an audience with the leader makes room for us, and before Jake and Dyson have the chance to climb the stairs, the overlord stands up. The air is tense all of a sudden. There are surprised murmurs around us, and from what I can gather, leaving the leather couch has to be very unusual for the master ghoul. I don't dare raise my head. 
Not even when I see the leader reflected in the immaculate black marble coating the floor, dismissing Jake and Dyson from my sides with the lazy swing of a hand. He stops in front of me. Somebody cut the music off. I can't say that everybody in the establishment is holding their breath because nobody has a breath to hold except for me, but I don't hold my breath. My breath is as loud as the music had been seconds prior. The leader leans towards me. Quite far from home, aren't you? My brain short circuits. <laughs> he notices and laughs. You held your ground in front of four of my best men. I'm impressed. There's a shudder quaking my body from head to toe. I raise my head to let my eyes confirm what my ears refuse to believe. And they do. But I can't say I expected any less from you, Magpie. He looks proud, Dad. Even prouder than he did on my graduation day. You're my daughter, after all. I told you you'll know what to do. The sun creeps above the horizon. The darkness slowly fades, for now. But you will fear the darkness once again, as you remain sleepless. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever sleepless. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.